0: You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Okay, good morning. I I am already uh, going to run out of time probably, so I thought I'd go ahead and get us going. Um, My name is Scott Keith. I am uh, the Executive Director of 1517 The Legacy Project. If you haven't checked us out, I'd ask you to do so. Maybe take out your phone and like us on Facey page, or um, I think we have an Instahui too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm also one of the hosts of a podcast called the Thinking Fellows Podcast, thinkingfellows.com. If you'd like to check that out, I'd appreciate it. This morning, I was talking to—I was sitting right over there for breakfast, and I was talking to a lady. In, she said, oh, what's your name? I said, Scott, Scott Keys. She goes, oh, you're the Lutheran. I said, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm the Lutheran. So <clears throat> here we go. On our podcast a couple weeks ago, I, they asked me what I wanted to call my, uh, my presentation at Mockingbird, and I sent them this very long title. And I said, hey, could you shorten that down for me? And they said, sure. And so then they published it, and this is a very long title still. <clears throat> but what happened is on our podcast, I uh, host a podcast with Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, I don't know if you've heard his name. He's been involved with the White Horse Inn for many years. Been on their podcast, I think, for, or their radio show originally. And now their podcast for some 30 years. We were talking on one of our breaks. And it was back when we were doing uh, something on the doctrine of justification. And eventually we're ramping up to do something on the doctrine of vocation. And he said, you know, I really wish most days that it was the doctrine of justification that changed the world. And by that, I kind of think he meant our society and how we practice in society. He goes, but I I fear that it's not the doctrine of justification that changed the world. I fear that it was actually the doctrine of vocation. And I said to him, you know, I think, Rod, um, that you're probably, number one, right, but that number two, I think they actually work in tandem. I remember I had Rod as a professor at Concordia University in Irvine. I was there from, I think, 1995 to 1998. That was kind of, he was there for 30 years too. He was just known for being sort of this cantankerous little guy. I often call him a hobbit. Um, He's little and he kind of looks like he just came out of a hobbit hole. And he's got the curmudgeonly demeanor to go along with it. I said that to my buddy Dave Ruffner the other day. And he said, you know, Scott, I'd be careful. You're holding down a pretty good Gimli over there. I said, yeah. Probably true. But... You know, I was drawn to him. I ended up, while I was at Concordia, taking, uh, I think, the 10 classes that he taught and making up about five more as independent study just so I could spend time with him. And I was pre seminary at the time. I didn't end up going to seminary, but as a pre seminary student, you took, at Concordia in the day, you took all the heavy duty classes in theology Doctrine 1, 2, and 3, Lutheran confessions, languages, the whole nine yards. And I remember I was in a, it had to be Doctrine 2 class because we were, we were he was teaching us about the means of grace. And in Lutheran theology, the means of grace is this idea, um, and probably in a lot of theologies, the means of grace is the idea that God actually works through stuff and through people to bring you to salvation. And when we talk about that, we say that God works through the Word and through the sacraments and through the people who are proclaiming that Word and giving out those sacraments to not only bring you to the faith, but to keep you in that faith for your entire life. And so he was saying, you know, when we talk this way, what we're actually saying is something very profound. He said, and he quoted for me, Roman, for us, Romans 1.16. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And when he did that, he said, and the gospel is the power of salvation. And he called it dynamite. Because what happens when the gospel is proclaimed in its purity is that the Holy Spirit actually works through that to create an explosion in your heart and turn you from unbelief to belief and or to keep you in that faith that you stand, but that you go out into the world and you you encounter the dangers of the world and the temptations of the world and your own sin and sin, death, and the devil war against you and you begin to doubt whether you are his. Then you hear that proclaimed gospel one more time And that dynamite goes off in your heart again and you persist in the faith. There's a couple of things that are important to understand about this. Is one, that this is the gospel. You ready? It's it's pretty simple. Uh, Sarah Condon said it this morning. I loved it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom you are the chief. Okay, so you are a sinner in need of grace. The gospel is that message, that power that God uses to communicate all the benefits that Christ won for you on the cross to you personally, you don't do anything, as Melanchthon would say, none of your merit is involved at all, but it's all on account of Christ and to God goes the glory when you are saved. I teach this stuff all the time. I teach it in classes to undergraduate students. I teach it in classes to graduate students. I go out on the road promoting my book, Being Dad. Father is a picture of God's grace. And I teach it to people all over the country. And I say that you have done nothing. Your vocation when it comes to your salvation is to do nothing. In other words, you contribute nothing to your salvation but your sin. But it's interesting. Every time you say that, every time you talk about it, every time you proclaim it, I'm often left thinking by looking at the crowd that, Many people are in the crowd are thinking there and sitting there and asking themselves, so now what? So now what? I was this type of Christian and they told me the now what was to measure my, whether I was a good Christian or a bad Christian by my external works. And these consisted of not watching bad movies, not smoking, not having sex, not drinking, whatever. It consisted of all those things. And you're telling me that I contribute nothing But now what? We want to ask ourselves then, if God has saved us, if God has given His Son to die for us, if God has risked and bet it all on us and given Christ, if He's done all that for us, now what can we do for God? My answer, I think, is sometimes disappointing because my answer is, you can do nothing for God. And I think that sometimes we need to think of the arrogance of the question, what can I do for God? Because we're approaching the almighty creator of heaven and earth. The one through who, through a mere word, brought all things into existence. Through a mere word, brought Adam and Eve into existence. Through mere words, brings you from death to life by the power of the gospel. And we approach him and say, okay, great, you did that for me. Now it's time to roll up my sleeves. What can I do for you? Answer, you can do nothing. But there is some good news even here. But because for your neighbor, you can do everything. There's a, there's a great saying out there that, and it, from Martin Luther. I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm not going to get it actually, exactly right. God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor surely does. And if you extend that out to the words of Christ, we know that when we do Anything for our neighbor, even those common everyday things, Christ looks at us and says, Whatever you've done for the least of these, my brethren, you've then done it for me. So for your neighbor in your vocation is to freely be yourself in Christ. Sometimes that's by sharing the gospel explicitly, but that doesn't mean that your necessarily your everyday vocation is to share the gospel explicitly. Last time I was in New York, I spoke at Christ Hold Fast New York. And we, one of the guys that spoke before me or after me, I don't remember, was on a panel. I think he's from Timothy Keller's church. Um, one of the associates there. Is that right? Is Timothy Keller in New York? I'm so bad on modern culture. Like I was going to make a joke about how many hours I spent last night trying to find pop culture references for you. <laughs> and I just, Simeon Brewer said, just, just don't do it. So I didn't do it. <clears throat> I mean, knows me even a little. I don't know any of these. But... <clears throat> And I remember we both did a thing on vocation. He got up and we were in the Q&A session and he very expressly uh, said, explicitly said, listen, but this means also that your job in your workplace, in your vocation, in your daily life is to spread the gospel. And I thought that might be true, maybe. But you know what? We actually, I, I fly a lot promoting the book. I fly a lot. I'm on 737-700 class airplanes all the time, going back and forth across the country. And and to quote Rod Rosenblatt, I honestly believe that it is the vocation of the engineer who designed the airfoil on that 737-700 that keeps me in the air as I'm traveling back and forth all over the country, that it is his actual vocation while he's at work to make sure the math works out. (laughs) and not necessarily to stop doing his calculus and look over at his buddy and go, have you heard about Jesus? <laughs> Do the math. Okay? But it is true that sometimes explicitly, sometimes not so explicitly, as part of our vocation, as my Dr. Father Jim Nestigan would say, that that gospel that we proclaim, that that faith that is projected and engendered by the proclamation of the gospel always comes to us on, a lip, on the lips of another person. Sometimes explicitly. Sometimes it's in a more concealed and obscured way. I'm kind of, um, it's probably a joke that all I can ever teach on is the parable of the prodigal son. <clears throat> I'm a Melanchthon and prodigal son. That's basically all I got. So <clears throat> today you're going to get the prodigal son. Um, but what I want to do for you today is I want to lay it out. It's amazing to me. I teach the prodigal son probably 20 or 30 times a year, the parable 20 or 30 times a year. And every time I teach it, I understand something more about it. I mean, that's kind of the nature with parables. Anytime somebody is explaining a parable to you and they go, this is what it means. Don't believe them because that's probably not what it means. Parables are like that. Christ used parables to inform us. He sometimes used parables to confuse us even to confound us, um, especially for the audiences at the time. We try to make them too simple. So I'm going to tell the story of the prodigal son today. Um, I want you to notice a couple things, though. I want you to notice that there is some, uh, primarily the parable is is about really your salvation, right? Primarily the parable is about how God loves you, even though you are either the younger son who steals all his money and runs off and blows it on whores, or the older son, who's right, self-righteous about the fact that you're not the younger son. Or you're both at the same time. But there's other stuff going on here, too. I'm a Lutheran, so we tend to see things in terms of law and gospel. Right? I, you can take that whole first, probably two-thirds of that parable that is basically the story of the younger son running off and his descent into poverty, into despair. That's a bunch of law right there. I mean, that's heavy-duty law for easily two-thirds of the parable. We run into some gospel later on, and the whole thing is maybe a story about vocation too. And right? in my book, "Being Dad, Father is a picture of God's grace. I use the parable of the prodigal son as a jumping-off point to describe the vocation of Father. But there's the vocation of son in there, too, right? And there's maybe our vocational relationships with one another told in that too. So I'm just going to tell you the story. A couple months ago, I was teaching Being Dad up in North Dakota. It was kind of funny. I had three, three gigs. The first one was to do a section on masculinity. And so we drive an hour and a half out from the airport up to this camp. And I kind of just blindly, I'm exhausted. I got it in at 2 in the morning. It's 20 below zero. I get in and I'm to teach masculinity. here I am like 5'7", a little pudgy, <clears throat> you know, fresh off the plane from California. Everyone knows no one's masculine in California. And I walk <laughs> into a room full of like six foot four Norwegian farmers <laughs> with hands like shovels, you know. And they just got done driving a tractor and shooting a deer, like literally, that's strapped to their hood. And I'm like, hi, I'm going to talk you about masculinity. And they're like, oh. Ah. <clears throat> so the next day I go into the church and the pastor says, I wasn't planning on doing anything in church. Um, I was going to, you know, worship. Weird. <clears throat> and he says, can you help me out this morning? I said, sure. What would you like? He goes, Well, just come and sit up at the front and we'll go from there. I'm like, Okay. So I come and sit up in the front and he's like, I want you to pretend like the entire congregation, like 350 people, by the way, the entire congregation is a school of blind children who have never heard the story of the prodigal son. And mind you, from memory, he says, I'd like you to retell the story in a three part play and name each part. And, you know, as I turn sheet white, I think to myself, Okay. You can do this. So that's what I'm going to tell you today. We're going to, I'm going to tell you that story. So here it goes. A man had two sons, an older son and a younger son. The older son is very much like most older sons. I have one of those myself. His name is Caleb. He's a very accomplished person. Straight A's in school. Usually do does exactly what I ask him to, exactly when I ask him to. Um, tends to be a little bit self-righteous, but we usually overlook that because he's so accomplished. He's 22 years old, he's graduating from Concordia with a major in theology and biblical languages with a 4.0, is married, has a grandbaby, and handles all this just fine. So we kind of give him a little leeway on the fact that he's sometimes kind of an ass. I, too, have a younger son, as did this man. And my, his younger son fits the bill of a younger son, sort of like mine does. Let's just say he's not quite as obedient, <clears throat> He's, if you know what I mean. He's not quite as, I'll do this right now when I'm asked to. He's more of a free spirit. This man had the same kind of son. But one day, this younger son switched from being kind of a free spirit to just being awful. And he comes to his dad and he says, hey, dad, I need you to give half of everything that's yours, that stuff that would be mine in my inheritance. And I need you to give it to me right now. Now, if we're talking about the vocation of son, he's really messing this one up. He's not fulfilling his vocation as son very well because a son, especially in this man's culture, would never do such a thing. There's some other hiccups that have to do with this man's culture. You see, he's a landowner. He owns an estate. He owns a farm. He has servants. He has sons, which means that in his culture, he's actually very well respected. He's pretty much—if you wanted to know what does a man look like—you would, in his culture, you'd point to this guy. Look, he now has not only one heir; he has two. Right? He's not a peasant. He's not a servant himself. He owns property. He owns livestock. He has lands that can be. Uh, fields that can be harvested, and he has servants himself. You look at him. There are some very stringent requirements of men like him and fathers like him in his culture, and one of them is never to give in to a petulant younger son. So when this younger son comes and says, give me half of my inheritance now, the last thing he should do would be say yes. Because a couple things have to happen. One, he'd have to break every cultural moray under which he lives in order to do that. Because, in his culture, the younger son doesn't get anything after he dies. The older son is entitled to it all. Okay, The older son's vocation as older son is to be the one to whom everything goes and then to act as the father of that household and take care of everybody else, including his younger brother, after the death of the father. That's his vocation in his culture. Secondly, the father would actually have to work some sort of legal mechanism in order to to be in some way declared dead so that he could take his property, sell off portions of it in order to give the son the cash for half of it. So when the son comes in and says, give me half my inheritance, it's crazy. The father should have turned around and said, you're nuts, get out of here. But he doesn't. And again, he's not going to the bank and draining a savings account. He's not calling up his 401k manager and saying, sell it off, split it in half. He's literally going through all of his stuff, figuring out what would equate to half, selling it, and giving it to the younger son. When he does this, it's pretty obvious from portions of the later story that everybody that knew him began to look at him and said, you are failing in your vocation. You are no good father, you are no good man, and you are letting this son, who is also no good, drag you down into the depths of forgetting everything that you know is good, right, and salutary, and forsaking what we love. But his love for his son seems to be greater anyway, that he risks the ultimate loss of his son, and does what he asks. He sells off the equivalent of half of his property, he gathers the money that comes from that, he gives it to the son, and the son heads off, again, all law, heads off into what we are told is a far-off country. We live in Southern California, we used to live in Northern Nevada, and when I think far-off country, I think Las Vegas, (laughs) right? And the son does really what happens in far-off countries like Las Vegas. Now, we're not really told this in the front end of the story, but later on when the brother's really pissed off at the younger son, we hear that he's probably in this far-off country blowing his money on drinking, on prostitutes, and on gambling. Okay, This son of yours who devoured your money with whores. We get some inclination that he really is in Vegas. And when he's there, he's doing those things, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll life. What happens to people who live that life as just a way of life, sooner or later, happens to him, probably sooner rather than later, he runs out of money. And what's worse is that that far-off land seems like everybody's running out of money in that far-off land. And it dips down into a deep famine, and we're told there's great despair, especially on the part of the younger son. He becomes so hungry while he's on this, in this far off land, that he starts looking for a job. He's like, I had all this money, I didn't have to work, now it's come down to it, I think I actually have to work, I'm going to get a job. And apparently the only one available to him is the one that will cause him to let go of maybe the one last part of his vocation as an honorable son of his father that he was holding on to. And he begins to work for a pig farmer. In his father's land, in his father's country, in his father's culture, one of the things you cannot do is touch unclean animals or be around unclean animals. The uncleanest of animals for his father's culture is a pig. So not only does he touch them, he has to be in their muck and their mire. He has to slop around with them. He has to take their slop and feed them. And we're told that he becomes so hungry that he desires to be fed with what the pigs are fed. Now, like I said about my North Dakota story, I'm not a farmer at all. I grew up in California, skateboarding and surfing and all the sort of typical things. But I do do watch Dirty Jobs. And there is a Dirty Jobs episode where Mike Rowe goes out to the desert of Las Vegas because he's going to be a pig farmer for a week or so. And he goes to the pig food collection point to get the pigs food, which means that they back up this giant open bed truck under this uh, receptacle. And in the receptacle is all of the leftover food from the different buffets in Las Vegas. That's just slopped in there. So you have just the grossest of gross, smelliest stuff, and they splat this food down in the trucks and they drive it out to the pigs and they dump it over and it splats everywhere so that micro and everybody, the pigs and everybody around is covered in this slop. This is this man. This is this younger son. He desires to eat from what the pigs are fed. He gets an inkling in his head in his desperation. He gets an inkling of a remembrance of what it meant to be his father's son, of fulfilling his vocation as son, and what it means to be the father, and how good and kind and gracious his father is. And he says to himself, Even my father's servants have enough food to eat. Really, more than enough food to eat. I know that I have messed this up royally. I know that I do not deserve to be reconsidered for the job, for the vocation of son of my father. But maybe he would consider me for another job. Maybe he would take me in under another vocational title. Maybe I could be a servant of my father. So he picks himself up. He wipes the pig off as best he can. And he begins to take the long journey home. And he walks home. And I have this idea in his head. Because in my mind, he's doing what we all do. He's doing what we all think is our Christian vocation when we mess up. Which is really the opposite of our Christian vocation. He is picking himself up by his bootstraps. He's thinking he can save himself by making a deal with his father. Much like when we screw up royally, we usually think we can save ourselves by making a deal with our father. If we just clean ourselves off, get our confession, get our testimony just right, God will take us back. But maybe that's not what the vocation of father is, to take back servants. So he starts walking home, and I have a vision in my head that he practices the whole way. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. No, let's do it the other way around. Father, I have sinned before you and heaven. No, it sounded better if I gave God glory first. And he does it all the way home. And he finally starts approaching home. Now remember, the father's vocation is to run his house according to his culture. To keep things in order. To keep his children in order. To keep his servants in order. To get the grain in on time. To make sure the animals are fed. To play his role in his society. And to play it well. But we get the idea that this whole time, the father has been messing up his vocation even more. Because the text of the story is pretty clear when it says, And while the son was still yet a long way off, the father saw him, had compassion on him, and ran to him. Now let's think about what that means. If the father was actually fulfilling his duties, his vocation, as the cultural said he should, and was running around making sure animals were fed, making sure grain was harvested, making sure his older son was in shape, making sure the servants were in shape, doing what they all were supposed to do, what are we to believe that as he was doing all these things, he looked out of the corner of his eye and then saw the son? Busy as he was, what becomes pretty apparent is that the father had been sitting around waiting the whole time. He hadn't been doing what he was supposed to do. He was doing the opposite of what a head of a household was supposed to do. He's sitting on his bum, maybe on a balcony overlooking the, the road to his house, gazing the horizon for the return of this son who he somehow knew would return. He had risked the loss of his son. He had risked the loss of his son's love. Yet he sat there scanning the road for his return the whole time. The son approaches. The father sees him, has compassion on him, runs down the stairs, down the road to approach him. And the son, seeing his father running, automatically starts to spit out his cruddy confession. Father, I've sinned before heaven, and before he can... The dynamite of salvation happens one more time. His, son, his father runs to him, embraces him, I think so hard that he nearly knocks him over. And just as the son is trying to spit out this lame confession, the father starts doing something. You see him engage his confession as father and as head of his household. And he starts barking orders to his servants. He says, Quick. Quick for a very important reason. Quick. Bring shoes and put them on his feet. Quick, bring a ring and put it on his finger. Quick, bring the robe and put it on him. And the son keeps trying to spit out his confession, and he's just still barking orders. Quick, kill the fattened calf because we must have a party and celebrate. Trying to get it out again. You see, the father will have nothing of it. The father's picked up on what his son is doing. The father's picked up on the fact that this son is still trying to shirk his vocation as son. That in his shame and in his despair, he thinks he's not worthy. What he doesn't realize is that he was never worthy of this vocation. That he, like you and I, live under the father's grace the whole time. That that was the vocation of father. Nothing that the culture told the father he was supposed to do was actually what he was supposed to do. He was to be this boy's father. And he will have nothing of this boy coming back and trying to do something else in his house. You will not be a servant in my house. Thus, I will tell the servants to go get shoes and put them on your feet. Because in our culture, servants walk around the house barefoot, sons wear shoes. I will tell them, it's going to skip order on you. I will tell them quick, go get my robe and put it on him in allusion to Isaiah and the robe of righteousness. I want you in your filthy, disgusting, smelly mess to be covered with my robe. So that much like when we are covered with that robe of righteousness and God looks at us and sees Christ, when passerbys walk by the Father's house and look on the Son, they might actually think that he's the Father. Sporting the Father's robe, wearing shoes like a family member. Quick, get a ring and put it on his finger. Most scholars who study this story think that that ring is most likely a signet ring. The ring with which the son could actually sell by using it to sign a legal document, could actually sell the rest of the property and do this whole thing all over again. You see, he's a son. That is his role, that is his vocation, that is who he is in his being. Sons. Are part of the household. Quick and th- kill the fattened calf. I don't know how, they, how you Anglicans pro- uh, pronounce Capon as a capon, Robert Capon. Uh, the great uh, Anglican theologian Robert Capon has a, a wonderful line in his book, uh, Kingdoms of Grace, when, he just, when he's exegeting the, the parable of the prodigal son. He says, many scholars will tell you that there is no sacrifice in the story of the prodigal son, that there's no atonement. In other words, that nothing had to die in order for the son to be brought back into the family, like Christ had to die in order for us to be brought back in the family. And he says, for all the scholars that say that, what do they think the fattened calf is doing? (laughs) That fattened calf's job for its whole life is to stand around in a pen and get fat and just wait to die. To wait for the right moment to die just at the right time. Sound familiar? Wait for the right moment to die, and that moment was the right moment, and we ask, why? And the Father explains it. Because this son of mine, notice the vocational and gospel attachment working in tandem, this son of mine was lost and is found, was dead and alive, it was fitting for that fattened calf to die right at this time so that we could celebrate. Because again, as Capen says, there's only one thing that's got to happen after a dead person comes back to life. you got to have a party. But there's still some law coming, sorry about it, because we know that the father had two sons. And the older son has been working in the field this whole time. While the younger son was off doing what he's doing in the far-off land, the older son sticks around and works. That's what he does. He works. He's a good worker. Self-righteous people are often good workers. He's a good worker. And eventually he comes out of the field. I like to think that he probably stayed in that field an extra 45 minutes that day, you know, longer than he normally would. Because he comes back and he pretends like he doesn't know what's going on but we're let in by his own confession that he really knew what was going on with the younger brother the whole time, that maybe he was keeping tabs on it. But he lets out like he doesn't know what's going on, and I think he comes right up to the border of where all the fun is happening. And stands there, I I have a tendency to do this when people are having fun too. Just stands there like, what are you guys all doing in there? What's so funny? And he looks maybe over a servant and he says, what's going on here? What are all these people doing in my house? I wasn't ready for this. I'm dirty from being in the fields all day. The servant looks at him and says, Your brother is home. And your father thought it was fitting to kill the fattened calf and to throw a party." He's like, What? The fattened calf? Doesn't that old geezer know that's the most valuable thing we still own? How could he do this? Go get my dad. still won't go in. The father comes out and he says, what's going on? Haven't you heard your brother's home? Why don't you come into the party? And he looks at him. And he shows that he really doesn't understand his role as son either, his vocation as son. He too thinks that he earned his place as son at some point. Not that he's been son on account of the grace of his father this whole time. Because he looks at him and says, are you kidding me? This son of yours who has blown all of our money, convorting with whores? you got to notice that. This son of yours, who this whole time has been blowing our money, convorting with whores, comes back, and you kill the most valuable animal we own, the most valuable thing we own, and invite our neighbors who can't stand you because of what a loser you've been because of this idiot, to a party? You take the rest of our money and blow it on him and these people who hate you? And he looks at him and he says, son, you've always been with me and all that I have is yours. I want you to think about that for a second. What had to happen at the beginning of the story? The father had to somehow become dead, sell half his property In order to give half to the younger son, who do you think he had to give the other half to in all likelihood? The older son. It's very likely. That's what's being referred to. You've always been with me. All that I have is yours. But it was fitting for us to celebrate and be glad, and he changes it around on him, reorients his not only gospel perspective, but his vocational perspective, and says, this brother of yours was lost and is found, was dead and alive, and it was fitting for us to celebrate. He's essentially telling him, come into the party, live your vocation as my son. And that older son is desperately saying, just like the people when I go out and teach the gospel are desperately saying to me, but what does that mean? To live my vocation. Capon is helpful on this again because he says the father looks at the older son and says, Come in, put on the stupid party hat, pour yourself a drink, and have a good time. What's your vocation? Come in, put on the stupid party hat, pour yourself a drink, and have a good time. You are a child of God by grace through faith on account of Christ alone. You can do nothing to earn His favor. You have it because of the meritorious works of Christ. And that's it. All that's left is for you to celebrate. So what does this celebration look like? I'm going to quote one other sort of radical theologian, a Lutheran this time. His name is Gerhard Ferdi. He was professor of theology uh, yeah, systematic theology at Luther Northwestern Seminary for all of his life. In fact, he sort of died right um, right after he retired there, not sort of he did die right after he retired from there He's known in our circles as um, somebody who doesn't ferdy who doesn't have a doctrine of, of uh, sanctification or good works and it's kind of silly because if you 've read any Ferdy or meet anybody that he's trained, you know they're they're really concerned with um, Piety, in the best sense of the word, right? Not like piety in the sense of not smoking or drinking, but as being faithful. And he was sort of, I think, channeling Luther, who was also claimed to have no doctrine of good works in his own time, right? That's the big claim on Luther. So this is Ferdy, sort of channeling the, uh, the objections to Luther, which are really objections to him. And he says, People who complain that Luther has no proper doctrine of good works and sanctification or ethics... We're always so concerned with ethics, aren't we? How are we supposed to behave? Mommy, please tell me. Sanctification or ethics always seem to forget the understanding of the Christian's calling. Perhaps, and this is where you've got you to roll with me on this one. Perhaps because your calling is so utterly realistic and unromantic. But virtually everything Luther wants to say about ethics comes back to his doctrine of vocation. One is to serve God in one's occupation, in one's concrete daily life and its duties in the world. Ferdy was a professor, so his context is usually teacher to student. So he does that the same thing here. He says, when I tell students that this first of all means that they should pay attention to being better students, they are often a little disappointed. They had more romantic things in mind. Now, I used to have, before all the Trump riots, I used to have to say, remember this was in the 60s and 70s when people were a little crazy, but I can just roll with it now. They had more romantic things in mind, like leading some protest, manning the barricades, or joining in some romantic crusade or social action, or going on a short-term mission trip, maybe. It does not occur to them that their first ethical duty is to be good students. Whatever call they, there might be for more extreme action, it must be remembered that Luther's idea is that first and foremost, one serves God by taking care of his creation. So what does this look like? I wish I had time. I would actually have uh, Reverend Monroe tell the story. I, I tell your story, at your father's story, at every being dad. <clears throat> um, what does this look like for me? It's pretty, it's funny how simple it is. When I was a father, when my kids were all at home, it was a little different. Um, now, it's, most days it's just my wife and I, cause our youngest daughter goes to live with our boys quite a bit. <clears throat> Every morning I wake up and I'm like most people who are completely addicted to caffeine. I have one thing on my mind, stagger to the French press, grind the coffee, pour the hot water in and wait and pray that those four minutes will happen quickly to press the French press, pour myself a <laughs> cup of coffee and go sit on the chair. But what does it mean when I fulfill my vocation? It means that occasionally, and probably not often, occasionally I remember to pour Joya, my wife, a cup of coffee too. And as I take mine out, I take hers, and I set it down next to her, give her a kiss on the cheek and tell her good morning before I start drinking mine or at the same time. It's utterly unromantic. realistic it means getting up every day and just going through the everyday motions of your life it means fulfilling your vocation whatever that may be to the best of your ability and this is also what it means don't forget this it means that knowing full well because you have encountered that dynamite of salvation which is really the only good reason to go to church on Sunday morning, that dynamite of salvation, you've encountered it not once, not twice, but hopefully time and time again on the lips of people you know and on the lips of people you love, you know that when you fail at that vocation, and you will regularly, if not more often than you succeed, that when you fail in your successes and in your failures, you stand in Christ alone, that you are His child. That your vocation when it comes to your faith is to do nothing and that Christ has done it all. Salvation comes to us on the lips of another and as part of our vocation, occasionally it comes on our lips. This is the dynamite of salvation. This is our Christian life. And now that I know the Mockingbird Mission Statement, I might even say, this is how we connect Christianity with the reality of everyday life in a fresh and hopefully completely down to earth Realistic and unromantic way as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation I think it's crucial that we understand both the dynamite of salvation and the scaffolding of our Christian life which is our vocation. And since I never do it go check out my book Being Dad, Father is a Picture of God's Grace it's on the book table out there. Have a great day thanks for listening.